When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to Claret and Blue, an Aston Villa podcast brought to you by Birmingham Live. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Claret and Blue podcast. We're joined by a special guest and a familiar face, um, Mr. Colin Abbott. I think, Colin, I normally introduce you as Aston Villa fanatic, author, historian, busybody, pain in the backside. Here we go. Um, but lovely, lovely fella, uh, Villa through and through. And you've come to join us. I mean, it's probably most Aston Villa fans' favourite subject because we haven't had too much to shout about since then. But we're talking about the 1980s. And the reason that we're doing that is another labour of love for you, um, the big Aston Villa book of the 80s. Can you just talk us... Uh, it's a long intro, wasn't it? Can you talk us through... <laughs> I'll let you get a word in at some stage. Can you just talk us through the kind of thinking behind it and, and how the project came about, first of all? Yeah, of course. Uh, Dave Lane at Legends Publishing contact me... 2.14 asked us to do the big Aston Villa book of the 70s that uh, that was put together came out in 2016 had a nice book launch at Villa Park it was always on the cards to do the 80s we started the 80s book when the 70s went to print but then there were a couple of sidelines in the 150 year book came out and then Barton's Army came out to commemorate the anniversary of the European Cup, but then this eighties books finally come out, and it uh, it's a bit of a roller coaster. The eighties, because you know we you know we won the league, then we won the European Cup. The team was disbanded very very quickly, and within five years of winning the European Cup, you know we were staring relegation in the face. Graham Taylor was brought in. What an inspirational signing he was, and he managed to turn this huge club. He turned it round 180 degrees and he got us back where we should be. It's, I mean, I've got a, a special affinity with the 80s anyway because it's probably the decade that I grew up. So, you know, New Order, Roland Rat, Only <laughs> <Okay. laughs> Fools and Horses, you know. It, it was, it, it's got a special kind of, a special feel anyway. But question I wanted to ask you before we kind of get into the, the real kind of parts of the book that, that that you most enjoyed or were most challenging was what was it like being a, a football fan at Aston Villa in the 80s? Brilliant. I didn't actually get to to watch. I left school in 1980 officially. I'd, I'd started bunking off school for years, but uh, I officially left in 1980 and I went to work on a farm and that was the year we actually won the title. And the farm I worked for... I got very, very little time off. And unfortunately, our first game of that decade at Leeds United, when we beat them 2-1, that was the first time I hadn't been to Leeds in like eight years. I couldn't get to the game. I only managed to get to a couple of games in that uh, in that season. And the following year, I was at Agricultural College and I only got to probably about six or seven games. Luckily, the European Cup final was one of them. And then I embarked on this career where I thought I was going to be a famous runner. And I didn't do too badly at it, actually. 
But then I got injuries, and because I couldn't race, I went from watching the Villa sort of once a month to every game, and it just and it just never stopped from there. Eighty seven, eighty eight. That that's really when I I got the bit between my teeth, and because I couldn't run, and it was depressing me that I couldn't. I just threw myself headlong into following the Villa around the country, and it coincided with us. You know, we got we got thirteen away wins in that in that season, and I was lucky enough to get to most of them grounds. And it just, I just never looked back from there, and it, it was brilliant. You said you mentioned um, Graham Taylor's arrival, transforming Villa towards the back end of the decade, and you know that season when when Villa did did get back 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 where we belong. You know, after one year one year in the second tier, and I know that your book. <laughs> We hear a lot about 81, 82 for obvious reasons, and we will discuss that, but your book encapsulates the entire decade, and I think a couple of the people you've been able to speak to um, reflect that back end of the decade as well, which was probably in, in a different way, as, as eventful as the first couple of years. Oh, definitely. Gary Thompson, for one. You know, Gary Thompson came to us 86 to 87. He, he signed for us. And we were really on the on the downwards on the downward spiral by then. He'd he'd actually he'd signed for us. He was a big Villa fan, and uh, when he came to us, players at the Villa were saying to him, you know, he says, you know, you shouldn't have come here. You've signed on too late. The 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 golden days are gone, and what's coming isn't going to be pretty. And Sheffield United Sheffield Wednesday teammates of his would come down, watch the Villa, and say. Your lot are going down, and and Gary didn't believe it. And you know this this adage about you're too big or you're too good to go down. No, you're not. No, you're not. We were shocking. Our third season under Graham Turner. See that that, that was the thing. You know we got Graham Turner, and he was a 36 year old manager. 36. You know that's a baby really to manage a team, and you're managing a side that's full of international players. Would 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 national player respect a manager who's not done anything or won anything or been at a small club? Can you remember that at the time, Colin? Can you remember? Obviously, we wouldn't have had the proliferation of social media now, and you know you can get your Villa news in a million different places. But do come to Claret and Blue. Can you imagine what the reaction would have been? Would you have found about it, found out about it on the back page of the Mail, or would there, would there have been a kind of cynicism there, thinking, "Well, who is this guy?" There was for me. There was for me because I was I was living in the northeast at the time, but everything everywhere where Aston Villa was mentioned, I would look it up, and I would, you know, I would I'd sort of dig deep, and Graham came in eighty four to five, uh, having taken over from Tony Barton. Tony was given a bit of a Tony was given a bit of a raw deal. Just, just hitting on very briefly to the early years of that decade, people were saying it was Ron's team. Well, as we've found out since then, Tony Barton, he signed. He was responsible for getting Andy Gray to the Villa, and he was responsible for getting every other player there. You know, your Mortimers and Bremners and Withs and Morleys. He he got them all at Aston Villa. What Ron did, he got them playing, and he you know he would turn players from Kenny Swain. Kenny Swain was a forward, he put him into the right-pack position. Alan Evans was a forward, he was pushed alongside Ken McNaught and formed probably the best centre-back partnership in the in the country. But uh, when Tony was given the reins, 
I've heard that he was a yes man to Ellis. I'm I'm not sure exactly how how true that is. I don't think Doug Ellis gave him as much respect and as much money to spend as Tony deserved. Uh, but Tony certainly stood his ground to to Doug Ellis. I remember one story that I was told was Tony Barton was in Doug Ellis's office, and Doug Ellis had some some dignitary to be collected from the airport. And he got on his phone and he said, right, I want Mervyn Day up here. He says, uh, and he told Mervyn Day he had to go and get a jacket and a cap and he had to go to the airport. And Tony Barton saying, no, you're not doing that. He's my first team player. You get another chauffeur. So Tony did stand up to Doug. Now, whether that was what cost him at the end of 83 to 4, I don't know. But at that same season... Tony's last season, you know, we'd, we'd already lost Kenny Swain in 82-3. He was a big, big player that was never replaced. Jimmy Rimmer was replaced by Nigel Spink. That, that wasn't such a big loss. That was a, a progression. It was, it was like evolution, wasn't it, you know? Rimmer goes out, great player. He's replaced by another great player in Nigel Spink. The, the statistics don't, don't lie. Following season, we lost Ken McNaught at the start of the season to Albion. Tony Morley was allowed to go. We got Steve McMahon came in, which was a really good sign, you know, tenacious midfield player, had some bite. We got a young lad, £350,000 for a young kid from, from Swindon, Paul Rideout, and that, that sort of had me, wow, I was a bit perplexed at that one. But then Paul Rideout, he was obviously going to be the natural progression to take Peter With's place in the side, and yet he was allowed to leave after two... He actually played his last game the same day as Peter Wyth at the end of 84-5. And, and Paul Rideout, had a, he had a, a scoring record of a goal every three games and he was allowed to leave. I think that's, that's, that's kind of the interesting thing because we've heard a lot about the kind of break-up of the European Cup winning squad and, you know, there's still, for understandable reasons, a lot of resentment from, from the legends towards Doug Ellis and the way that that team was dismantled. Yeah. If we could, I know it's a bit of a hypothetical because it hasn't happened and it didn't happen, but if you could have kept some of those players together or more of those players together, we did have quite a talented production line coming through, didn't we? Because we had Paul Birch, Tony Daly, Mark Walters, Tony DiRigo. Um, yeah. That's that, right. That That's not a squad. If, you, if they're underpinned by a bit of quality and experience who have got the miles on the clock that a lot of the European Cup winners have that's not a squad that goes anywhere near relegation is it? No it's not but what you, what you don't do you don't you don't Liverpool of the 70s they might they might replace one or two players a season you don't go and rip your, the heart of your team out and then replace it with kids you know we had Darren Glover and Dean Glover sorry and Darren Bradley and Paul Kerr Kevin Poole it, it, it was just like the entire youth team was just thrust forward into the first team and you can't do it. And then at the time we had, you know, during that 80s decline, we had players coming in. I can remember us getting a lad called Steve Foster. No disrespect to Steve Foster, but I remember him playing for Brighton in the 83 FA Cup final. And he was on, a, he was on so many cards and the, the deal was if, if he managed to get himself sent off, in the last game before the Wembley final against Manchester United in 83, he would get to play at Wembley. And this lad couldn't even get himself sent off. And I'm thinking, wow, he's not a very clever player. 
I think he only played, he either played 17 or 18 games, not much more than David Unsworth years later. <laughs> and, and this is the point, we bought players that were sort of underwhelming. We'd, we'd get them, Tony Barton's first season, full season in charge of 82 to three, I think one of his only signings was a lad called Alan Kirbishley. And again, you know, no disrespect to Alan, but if anyone talks about Alan Kirbishley, they don't associate him with being an Aston Villa player. It's Birmingham or it's Charlton Athletic. He came in, he played 60-odd games, and he was gone. Steve McMahon came in, same day, same time as Paul Rideout. Two good players, we should have held on to them. They went, Steve went back to, he went back to... Merseyside and went to Liverpool and you can't blame him for that but we had two seasons out of those and then we had Steve Hodge and the least said about Steve the better Go into a bit of the kind of process of writing writing the book I know you're a kind of master how many books you got now Colin about ten? Seven Blimey Seven at the moment and we've got two in the pipeline me and Dave Blimey I don't know how you get time to get time to sleep um, so in terms of this one then been lucky enough to, to get my hands on a copy people who, who who get it or flick through it will, will realise this but you know so you've got interviews with some of the, the main protagonists you've got profiles on the the managers the, the, the variety of managers throughout the decade pretty much well, every every first team game is chronicled and then there's a similar kind of look at youth team fixtures, friendly fixtures um, reserve team fixtures how do you go about collating all that information? Because information wasn't that readily available back in the 80s as it is today. No. Uh, Dave Lane at Legends Publishing has newspaper accounts where we've got access to all the archives. Now, back in the 80s, the Villa News and Record, for some reason, didn't chronicle all the Central League and the Youth Cup matches. We had to go through the Mail and the Sports Argus and other papers if the Villa were playing a youth cup game down at say Palace we'd be going through the London Standard or whatever it was called it's the stuff's there it's just a case of finding it and as 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 regarding the match reports the first team you're always going to get a match report on on Aston Villa and I'd get two or three I'd read them and then I'd dissect break down and use the pieces that I wanted but it incredibly time consuming but because Aston Villa means so much it's not uh, it's it's a labour of love I was going to ask you that how much of it is graft and how much of it is a really good interesting way to you for you to, to spend your days especially for the games that I went to it's it evokes the memories and and I sort of sometimes I sort of put me a little twist on on some of those the the eighty to eight the eighty seven to eighty eight season, you know, we we went into that one and we I think we lost the first three. We didn't do we we started badly. This is when Graham Taylor had first come in and he'd uh Wow, did he did he set his teeth he made his teeth meet at that first meeting at Villa Park. He uh he came in, told them who he was and, and everyone sort of stood there in disbelief. Graham Taylor had never achieved anything in his career as what all these lads in front of him had. And then he'd he'd say he'd point to Paul Elliott and say, Did you give your all for Aston Villa last year? You know, the season we went down. And Paul would say, well, Yeah, I did. He says, So why are you leaving? And then he'd point to Dorigo and say, Did you give your all for Aston Villa? Yes. Why are you going to Chelsea? And he, he just pulled them to bits. He pulled Gary Thompson to bits, Andy Gray. But then he turned it. And 
it was once we hit that mark and we started winning games, writing the match reports for them. But it's far easier to write the match report when the Villas won than it is to when we've been beaten. You know, we tell me about it. I was the Villa reporter for about five years. I don't think we won a game. <laughs> yeah, coming up in '87 to '88, that that was special. Uh, I went to a lot of those games. I managed to get to the last game of the, the season at Swindon when we drew nil nil. I'd been to Villa Park a few months before then, a weekend when we weren't playing, and I'd taken a girlfriend down, and Villa Park was deserted. And this fella appeared from nowhere and he said, can I help you? And I said, I'm just, just showing my girlfriend my second home. And I says, I was hoping there'd be somewhere so I could get in on the pitch like. And he, and he opened this door and he says, yeah, go on in. So I took her in there and stood on the pitch and I wanted a photograph of her with the North Stand behind the, the claret and blue seats like. And I couldn't, get, I couldn't get her in the goal and the seats. So I laid down on the pitch and, uh, and I thought nothing of it. And we came out and I thanked the bloke and he says, you're lucky I was here. He says, I've been putting someone's ashes on the pitch. And he says, it was on the penalty spot. And I thought, wow, I wouldn't believe this. And I looked over and, and he's on me back. And I'm, I'm pushing all these ashes off my back. He was in my car. I stopped at a relations in Dwight, which he ended up in a vacuum. So these poor fellows, he ended up on the penalty spot, but he's, he was well-travelled. But... I'm digressing, sorry. <laughs> I love it. But uh, yeah, I went. Uh, that 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 man who was good enough to show us round was Ted Small. He was the groundsman. I knew there was a point to that. <laughs> Ted Small. I got in touch with the Villa, and I, I, I wrote to this Ted Small, and I said, "Look, I'm a big Villa fan. I haven't got a season ticket. I live, I live right up near Scotland, and." Uh, and I said, I need a ticket for Swindon. You know, if you could help me out, you tell me how much to send a cheque for and, and, and I'll do it. Anyway, he managed to pull two tickets out for me and a friend to, to go to Swindon because people bang on about Highbury in 81. They bang on about the European Cup final. They bang on about Swindon. You know, it was a promotion at Swindon. It, on a scale of things, that shouldn't really register because, in fairness, Aston Villa shouldn't have been in the second division. But we were, and we got out. Writing that match report, you know, it sounds a bit stupid. I nearly had a tear in my eye because I can remember just how special it was down there. We drove down from the northeast. We'd actually passed the coach. I think it was Leicester City playing at Middlesbrough that day. But, and we passed their coach. And at the same time, I think Ipswich were playing at Bradford. Now, people remember Middlesbrough could have... Had we lost that day at Swindon and Middlesbrough had won, Middlesbrough would have gone up automatically, but Leicester City beat them. Yeah. Now, people would forget that had Bradford City won that day and we'd lost, Bradford City would have gone up above us. So, you know, the, the, the stars was aligned that day for us. And we finished on the same points as Middlesbrough. Our goal difference was even the same. We went up by virtue scoring five goals more than them. How close can you get? So you, you've mentioned it in the context of big Aston Villa away days, I suppose, and big, big exciting trips. But yeah. I'd have been 
in my very first couple of years of being a Villa fan back then, and my dad would have probably taken me to half a dozen games a season. So I wouldn't have been at Swindon. No. I'd have probably been playing on my little snooker table at yeah. home, listening to WM. Um, yeah. da -da -da -da. Although it was a nil-nil draw, wasn't it? So I wouldn't, it have was. any, I wouldn't have had any da -da -da -das that day. Tell us a little bit about the atmosphere then, because was there a pitch invasion I've seen, I think, there at the was. end? I was... I was lucky in the fact that I'd got these two tickets off Ted Small, so I was actually in the seats, and the lad sat directly behind me was the Villa lad from Aberdeen, Neil Cooper, who was injured. So I'm sat, I'm sat when we meet in quite a smallish area of seated Villa fans. The majority of Villa fans are behind the goal to my left. When the game finished, we didn't know whether we were staying where we were we didn't know if we were going up we just didn't know there was about something like i don't know maybe seven or eight minute delay you just knew as soon as it happened that we were going up because quite a few people ran down out the seats and they had to jump probably probably something like eight to ten foot down onto the pitch level from where we were and ran across and they were picking the players up and i was tempted but i was still running at the time and i thought I'm not. I'm not damaging my legs just to jump down there. So I just, I just stood at the front of the seats, cheering like an idiot. What, a, what a, what a fantastic feeling! It was like winning a cup final. And I remember getting in the car. I had, I had an XR2. It was a beautiful car, and I remember absolutely flying, flying out of Swindon, trying to pick off all the Villa coaches going back, and we were pressing the air horns, and we had half a dozen Villa flags hanging out the car windows, and. And it, it was a fantastic drive all the way past the Midlands, but then after we left the Midlands and we're driving back up to the north, there was no Villa fans to sort of catch. But then we were sort of looking for Leicester fans coming back down and <laughs> giving them the thumbs up as we were going up because that was just magic, absolutely magic. I've, uh, you have to excuse my... my presenting interviewing style Colin because I've jumped I've jumped from one one year and back yeah, yeah. and forth and stuff but it's all laid out chronologically in the uh, big Aston Villa book of, of the 80s just um, just finally then just kind of talk us through the last couple of years because Graham's come he's rescued us and not only has he have we gone from being out of place in Division 2 but we're now within a couple of years challenging for the title at the, the, yeah. the top end of the old first division. Well, we, we got back into the first division and, you know, one of the very first games of the season, we go and win at Highbury and everyone's like, wow, you know, where's this going to go? We hit bad form and by the end of the season, we're actually looking over our shoulders at possible relegation. And uh, after the euphoria of coming up, you know, we, we really didn't want to be down there. We stayed up by the skin of our teeth. Uh, our season finished... West Ham United still had two games to go and uh, if they won at Forest and won at Liverpool, they would send us down. And I can remember, I, I, I couldn't sleep. They, they won at Forest and you're like, oh no, what's going to happen here? And I can remember, I was, I was actually dreaming the night before they played at Liverpool. I dreamt that West Ham were winning. In the end, they got thumped 5-1, I think it was. And, and that, and I remember talking to David Platt when I interviewed him for the book, and he was driving down to London to be part of an England uh, get-together when he heard on the radio that West Ham had lost at Liverpool. And that was the only reason we, we stayed up that year. And then the following season... Just be, just sorry to interrupt you, Colt. Was there much pressure on Graham? 
then? Can you remember? Were people thinking, oh, you know, he might have got us back up, but he can't keep us there? Or I don't know. I don't know because, see, we're living in the northeast. I I wasn't getting all the tick bits that you yeah. would get. Somebody living in the Midlands yeah. would get, you know, chapter and verse. Yeah, on Yeah, mate who drinks with a physio yeah. in the pub, and That's yeah, exactly right. So I wasn't, I wasn't at the cutting edge of everything that was coming out on Taylor. I'm I'm sure any manager that finds themselves at the bottom is going to be under pressure from somewhere, though it wasn't quite as intense then as today is. Yeah. You know, if you're a manager and you lose two games, you're looking over your shoulder. You lose three, you've gone. Yeah. So it wasn't quite as bad in those days. And and I remember Graham. I remember the, I remember the Villa playing Derby County, and. We struggled to to beat them. Dean Saunders was playing for them, for Derby at Villa Park. We won the game one nil, and Graham Taylor had actually gone on record as as saying, had had we lost that day, he was going to walk. Yeah. And he and he said after the game, he says we won. He says today I'm a great manager. He said if Derby County had taken their chances, he says I'd have been a I'd have been a bad manager. I remember I've got like an old VHS video, whether it was that particular game or it was Graham's time because Graham he comes out with this phrase and says something like uh, fine lines between success and failure if you what was it something I think it's like if you win if if we win I stay in if we lose you go out on the yeah. booze or something yeah <laughs> but he, he was he was ready to walk had we lost that game against Derby County the the turning point was when we beat Everton 6-2 that yeah. day Everton it was a Sunday game and if Everton had won they'd have gone top yeah. so it's not like they were a poor Everton side at the time, but we 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 absolutely annihilated them. We were six nil up, I think. Sid and Platt. Yeah, and and that's when people started sitting up and taking notice of us, and we just went on a roll. And I can remember, I I went to nearly every single game, and I was living in the northeast still then, and I can remember this sequence of games. You know, you can talk to fans now, and and they look at you as if you're talking double Dutch. Because we played Arsenal, and Arsenal were a great side, and we beat them 2-1 at Villa Park. Then we beat Man United 3-0 at Villa Park. Was that Boxing Day, that Man United? Yes. Yeah, I remember being in the halt for that. And yeah. then New Year's Day, me and my brother, who was sadly no longer with me, we went to Stamford Bridge and we turned those over 3-0. Yeah. So, you know, to get to get those three wins back-to-back, back, yeah. absolutely and that, unbelievable. That was the players as well in that team, Platt, McNally... Yeah, um, Kevin Gage wading with goals. Yeah, it was it was just it was brilliant and and the thing about it was you went to these games, Matt, and you you fully expected the Villa to win. Yeah. You didn't go there hoping. Yeah, you went there expecting. Yeah, and and it was brilliant. And it, it I went down to see them at Plough Lane. You know we won at Plough Lane. We beat a, a good Spurs side that had Lineker and and Gascoigne in the team. We beat those two nil on the. On the Wednesday night, I think it was. Then on the Saturday, we're playing Wimbledon at home. Had we won that, I think we'd have gone five points clear with the game in hand. We get a penalty early doors. David Platt, you'd put your house on him. And it's and it doesn't go in. And it and that that was the turning point. They beat us three 0 So Villa though, isn't it? Just yeah. to kind of tease yeah. you and tease you, then just you, pull you, the rug. You, you can go and beat Tottenham at Tottenham. <laughs> Some of those games that season, they were just outstanding. But we we ended up, you know, as you know, Liverpool, Liverpool took their first title for a long time. It, it was their first, I think it was the last one until Klopp come in. 
But uh, the points margin at the end between us and those, it wasn't really reflective. We really did cave at the end, and it and it was quite sad. And it was uh, it was Graham Taylor's last season. He knew he was going to England. I can remember being at Villa Park when we. It was the the three all draw at Norwich at home to Norwich City that that was when that ended the the dream of taking the title, and then everybody had tickets for Everton the last game of the season, and it was like a carnival. Even though we hadn't won the title, we we, we were guaranteed runners up regardless because our points total between us and third, I think it was Tottenham, it was so great we couldn't be caught, and it was just. Uh, it was a funny day that you normally don't feel very good when your team don't win, but we drew three all at Everton and we just did not want to leave the ground until Graham Taylor come out. And I can remember something something must have happened because Neville Southall, the Everton goalkeeper, when the players trooped off at half time, he just went and sat in the goal and he just sat against the goal mouth, against the goal post that, yeah. for the entire half for the entire half time yeah. break. Lovely, lovely memories. The Graham Taylor era, I think, is what what made me fall in love with Villa. I'd been like an 11, 10, 11, 12-year-old lad towards yeah. the end of the 90s. Um, genuinely, people probably think I was probably 10 or 11 towards the end of the 50s. But uh, So it was that time. Uh, uh, 10 or 11 at the end of the 80s. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, 10, just at the end of the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he's ever had a life than I thought. Right. Yeah, so that was that that was the era, Graham Taylor. Graham Taylor's Villa that I fell in love with Villa. I'd have been 10, 11, 12 towards the end of the 80s going into the 90s. Um, pestering my dad to take me a few more times. So didn't see the wonderful, wonderful things at the start of the 80s, but got the sense that Aston Villa were back if you like Aston yeah. Villa are a force to be reckoned with um, at the end of the at the end of the 80s early 90s which just you know probably sounds a bit convenient but it just shows what that kind of decade was like in oh, terms yeah. of this kind of roller coaster yeah. of emotions we started on a high and we finished on a high yeah. there was just a bit of a lull in the middle and before we wrap up um, I believe you've got um, like Dennis Mortimer going all the way back to the start yeah, yeah, of the decade yeah. again Dennis Mortimer I know he's become a friend as well as a, a hero of yours great great bloke um, you've got, a, got a, a Dennis story to share yeah, with us well Sally. what people don't realise is our great captain who lifted the title in 81 and then the European Cup in 82 that wasn't the last of his silverware he actually landed the Birmingham Senior Cup <laughs> In 1984, I you're going European Super Cup then, no, but no, no you're going no. even beyond that. So, how many people would would go from winning a European Cup to two years later winning the Birmingham Senior Cup? I bet there's no one else in history. So that makes our captain Dennis even more unique. I'd take a Birmingham Senior Cup now, to be honest. It's been such a such, I'd a, take any cup. such a such a long wait. Yeah. Um, now, Colin, as ever, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. I, I hope we've given a flavour of the book. You know, it's it really is 400 pages, I think it is, isn't it? Some great photographs as well in there, including one of George Best in a villa top. That's right. Um, and, you know, listen, I suppose it's... I'll let, you, I'll let you do the plug. Go on, tell, tell, tell people why they should have this under the Christmas trees. Yeah, because it's, it's the best book on Aston Villa ever put, ever put together up to now. We'll have to cut that. All right, Colin, chill, chill out. Don't get to... Till <laughs> me next one. <laughs> no, it's just, it's, it's, just a, it's just a wonderful thing to evoke memories of a time when... It doesn't matter which decade you pick, but because the, because the 80s 
fell sort of 40 years ago, there's still going to be people out there that can remember taking their kids to their first games, like Matt. But then on the same score, that decade is going to be a time when these kids have grown up and they're taking their own kids to these to these games. So it's, it's just one of these decades that just falls right. It's the end of one cycle, one one generation, yeah. and it's the beginning of another. No, that 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 sounds like a good way to sum it up to me, and it it really you know it it, it does the job. It's a it's a really interesting, well, fascinating really, a, a, a chronicle and account of. Um, I think you know, I wasn't I wasn't long enough, I wasn't old enough to remember two of the decades prior to that, but probably the most eventful decade in, in in Aston Villa's history. I don't don't think that can be disputed, can it? Not at all. When I when I phoned David Platt last week to after he'd got his book, such a name dropper. I asked him what he thought of it, and. Uh, and he says it's not one of these books that you'd put on your bookshelf. He says it's a coffee table book. Yeah. He says and you pick it up and you look and and it's there. There you go. You can get no final endorsement from that. Exactly okay. right. He's my ultimate hero, Platty. So, yeah, um, likewise. No, brilliant. Well, what we're going to do, Colin's going to sign uh, this copy of the of the book and we're going to give it away. We'll get it to you before Christmas. All you have to do to be in with a chance of winning it is to leave a comment below preferably something nice about Colin's beard or, you know, how young and fit I look. Uh, You've got that wrong. <laughs> leave, leave a comment below. Uh, we'll pick one at random and we'll make sure that, that one of you's got this um, underneath your Christmas tree. Good luck to everybody. You've been watching myself, Matt Kendrick, with our special guest, Mr. Aston Villa, Colin Abbott. Uh, until next time, up the villa. Thank you for listening to Claret and Blue and Aston Villa podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please do let us know. We love hearing your thoughts and comments. We'll be back soon with another episode, but until then, up the villa. Up the villa.